All right. That's the first time that's ever been said, ever. Have a great time listening to Tony. <laughs> it is the last Sunday before Christmas, and so I do want to ask how many of you are all done with your Christmas shopping? You can raise your hand if you are. Okay, okay. How many of you are, have, how many of you haven't started yet? I see one. How many of you are like confidently partly done? Yeah, that's me too, that's me too. Well, today's also the last Sunday of Advent. And the last Sunday for us in Matthew 24. And so go ahead and turn there, Matthew 24. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 51 this morning. I hope this time has been helpful and hopeful for you as we've worked through chapter 24. And I hope that it continues to be that today as we consider the blessing of Christ's kingdom coming. There's a warning throughout the text today that we would be ready calling us to be ready. And so let's look at the text together. If you're able, please stand and follow along as I read, beginning with verse 36 of Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes." Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess, Lord, at times it is jarring and that we need your help. We desire to have the hope of your coming, that we'd be filled with anticipation and hope as we think about these things. So help us as we go through this text today, Lord that you'd be glorified with our hearts, with our motives, with our response to who you are and what you've done. We pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This text is dealing with the day and hour when Jesus will return. That's what we're going to be talking about today, which is a wonderful thing to talk about on the last Sunday of Advent. Just to remind you, that's what Advent means. It means coming. Jesus is coming again. Now, the question that all of us probably have is, when? When is He coming? And the answer is we don't know. In fact, Jesus says something surprising here, doesn't He? In verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, that's surprising, right? In particular, if you're not familiar with this text, it's probably very surprising. Now, how can it be that the Son of God, God in the flesh, doesn't know when He's coming back, when He's going to return. How is that possible? Well, remember Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus willingly emptied Himself as He came to this earth, as He took on flesh. And so, Jesus is omnipotent, and yet He got tired and He fell asleep. Jesus is omnipresent, and yet He walked from one place to the next. Jesus is omniscient. And yet he asked, who touched my garment? He emptied himself. Why? So that he would be fully God and fully man. He came to us to dwell with us. And so what about now? Does this mean that Jesus still doesn't know when He's coming back? And I would say, no, it doesn't mean that. I don't think it means that Jesus today has no idea when He's going to return. I think He knows the day and He knows the hour. And here's why I think that. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's end times language, okay? That's them asking, is it now? Are you going to set up your kingdom now and reign forever and ever and ever here on this earth? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So at this point, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is glorified. He's been raised from the dead, and He is glorified. 
And he doesn't say, you guys, I told you, I don't know. At this point, he now says, it's not for you to know times and seasons. So I, I believe Jesus did not know when he spoke to the disciples in Matthew 24, but now in his glorified state with God the Father knows the angels still do not know, and most importantly, we do not know. That's one of the main points we have to come away from with the text today. We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. And here is Jesus' description for how that plays out, beginning with verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, you know the story of Noah and the ark. Noah preached to his generation that God was going to judge their wickedness. And he worked for years and years and years and years building a physical sign of his judgment, the ark. And yet, the people continued to live their lives as normal, in disbelief, rejecting his message. And they went about their daily affairs until the day when Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and swept them all away, it says. Jesus is saying here that it will be the same with His second coming. Life will go on as usual until the day that the Lord returns. So whatever your eschatology is, whatever your belief in end times is, it ought to include this. Things are going to go on as normal. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, going about their daily affairs until the day when Jesus comes back to this earth, unaware until He comes. It's a picture for us of just life going on in its normal rhythms until the return of Jesus. Verses 40 and 41, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Jesus gives an image here describing how believers and unbelievers will exist side by side until the Lord comes and separates them. Now, I'll tell you, for much of my life, I would read this text and I would respond, at least in my mind and my heart, I want to be taken because I understood it as meaning the one who was taken was the one who was safe with Jesus. But I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I don't think it is the case here. It could be. If Jesus is referring back into what He said before when He talked about sending angels out and gathering the elect, it could mean that. However, the context seems to say the opposite, because in the case of Noah, those who are taken were those who were judged. 
The word for swept away in verse 39 is the exact same word for taken in verse 40. So it's a picture of the Lord coming and separating those to be judged out from those who will live forever on this earth that He will then renew. Either way, whatever its meaning there, what is the emphasis? What is Jesus' point and emphasis in this? People are engaged in the normal rhythms of life, unaware that He's coming, and it's a call to be ready at all times. And that's what we see moving forward in the text. Verse 42 could not be clearer. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We must watch continuously. We must stay awake, be watchful. And he gives this example of a thief in verses 43 and 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In one sense, Jesus is like the thief here in the story. Since no one knows when a thief comes, a wise master watches his house continuously. Jesus says if he knew, if he knew when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would have watched. And since no one knows when the Son of Man comes, wise disciples watch continuously. Watching here, as we look at the rest of this text, watching is active. Faithful and righteous actions of the disciples, that's watching. Verses 45 through 51, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour, he does not know. And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a sobering parable. It's the first of three parables that focus on being watchful, being ready. And in the story, a master sets a servant over his household and leaves for an extended and yet undisclosed amount of time. The servant doesn't know when he's coming back. The servant is to do what? The master leaves him to take care of those in the household, to give them food at the proper time, to care for other servants, to manage the household, the land, the people. And there's two kinds of servants here. The first is the faithful and the wise servant. His master sets him over his household, and when he returns, he finds that he was faithful. Things are as good or better than when the master left. 
has been a good steward of the master's property and of the master's image bearers. And what does it say of this servant? He blesses him. But there's another kind of servant. If the servant says, who knows when he's coming back or if he's actually coming back at all, begins to take advantage of his position and abusing the other servants and living life for himself, then when the master returns, and he will return, that servant will see destruction. The master will come on a day that he didn't expect, at an hour he doesn't know. And the language here is graphic. We'll cut him in pieces. For honest, that seems excessive for the parable, right? Place him with the hypocrites, we get that. That's more palatable for us. But what does this mean? Cut him in pieces. It's judgment language. It's the language of final judgment. He follows that with, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a reference to eternal punishment away from God always. Let's not miss something. The point is not that the wicked servant is unprepared at the moment of the master's return. He didn't have a chance to get things ready. He was caught off guard. No, he would never have been prepared. It's who he is. Jesus' point is that being ready is something we do every hour. Every day it implies here that to be watchful is not to be passive. You consider this, Jesus says over and over to be ready, to watch, to stay awake, that no one knows the day or the hour. He repeats those things purposefully to prepare us, to awaken us, to get us doing something. He's, he's attempting to get us to do something, not just to think something. Jesus is coming again. That's what we remember and celebrate in Advent. He's coming. And we can be tempted just as easily as the wicked servant to get distracted, to believe that He isn't coming for a while or at all. To begin to be less purposeful or worse, to abuse the position that He's given us, the people and the property the Lord has entrusted to us. So what does watching and waiting look like? I think we're going to see more in the next couple weeks as well, but also in the text today, watching and waiting is active. Remember the text I read last week from Luke chapter 21, verse 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. Now, notice something there. We don't need to straighten up and raise our heads if our heads are already lifted as if we are disengaged from the world and just staring at heaven waiting for Him to return. We don't have to lift heads that are just looking up all the time. 
even here's the idea that we are laboring side by side with the world, actively engaged in love, hospitality, and stewardship. Watching and waiting is cultivating a land that the master would be pleased to return to find. That's what the parable is telling us there. It's doing something. It's living a certain way. It's working by the power and authority entrusted to us by Him to bring about life that reflects His values and His desires. A simple way of saying it is loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. The wicked servant in the parable did not love his neighbor. He loved himself, which showed he didn't love the master. Loving neighbor in a way that is watching and waiting for our king who has entrusted us with a responsibility on this earth he has created looks like something. should look like championing leaders and laborers who reflect His kingdom qualities. It should look like working toward and embracing lessons and laws that demonstrate His heart for people. I think watching and waiting as a faithful and wise servant should look like welcoming those who He would embrace, the weak and heavy laden, the outcast, the sinner, the humble, the broken. I think it should look like living in a way that exposes our belief that He is alive. That He's invested in this land and that He's coming at any moment. It's not a mindset that says this land is going to burn anyway. Let's just do what's best for us, for my land. It's caring for His household, His image bearers in a way that says, I love the master, and therefore I love you. And loving the master will result in talking about him, telling the good news about the master, telling what he's like, that he's coming back and you should meet him because he's wonderful. Being good stewards of the master's property, the master's image bearers, the truth is we need help in this, and our help comes from the Lord. We wait literally for the advent of Jesus, His second coming, literally and physically to this earth. He's coming again. But we also remember that He has come, Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us now, and Paul tells us that the same power that raised him from the dead is at work on our behalf. And then we're not hopeless in these things. We're not hopeless in living a life that betters the things around us for the sake of his name, that he might come back and find that his servants made things as good or better than when he left. We remember that this text is a text of blessing for those of us who are in Christ and who long to see His coming and who live in light of His life. 
We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. This week, we're all going to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the coming of God to this earth. And as we do, we ought to remember He didn't stay in a manger. Jesus didn't stay in the manger. He grew. He loved. He taught. He lived a sinless life. He healed. He embraced those who had been forgotten. He welcomed the immigrant. He embraced the broken. He identified with sinners. And then He died for all of them. His body was broken and His blood poured out for their sins and for our sins. As we come forward in a moment, as you're dismissed to come to receive the bread and the cup, let's prepare our hearts to take it together. Let's prepare our hearts by remembering rightly our King made a way for us. Made us a people for His own possession and is coming to live with us forever. And let's wait and watch in a way that is wise and that is hopeful. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. You're so good to us, Lord. You're so patient with us, Lord. We want to be wise and faithful servants. You've entrusted to us Your kingdom. You called us to love the way that You love. So we ask for Your help, Lord, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead would empower us to live a life that reflects Jesus, loves the way that You love, that cares for those around us the way that You care for them, that embraces those that You would embrace, Lord, that welcomes those You would welcome, that denies self, that takes up our cross, that follows you. We pray that you be glorified through us in how we live and how we think and how we do all of the things that we do for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.